Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of The Well-Read Investor, the podcast that profits your mind and your money. Before we get to today's author and book, I want to talk to you for a moment about the U.S. election. As we record this, it's the morning of November 3rd, which means the country is outvoting. And regardless of the outcome, I want to give you a few points worth considering. First, it's my belief that in investing, everyone pays. You can pay with your money or you pay with emotion. One way or another, long-term investors must pay the psychological toll put upon them in moments of high stress such as these. Earlier this year, the same was true for COVID as the world grappled with that for the first time. The question is not whether the election winners were the ones you wanted, if we even know the outcome yet, but whether you have the fortitude to stick with your investing roadmap in nervous moments such as these. It's very difficult to do, and in fact, I'd say it's the separator between truly successful long-term investing and just floundering. Avoid knee-jerk reactions. Be deliberate with your decisions, especially your money. Markets often swing in adjusting to news, and they'll probably do that this time too, in the short term. Recall, for example, the initial reaction to Trump's victory in 2016 was negative, but swung positive quickly. So much yet can happen. And realize that while today, whatever the outcome may seem the most important thing ever, it probably isn't. Politicians always promise more than they'll do, and campaigns are the ultimate ground for talk, talk, talk. That's why we always say at Fisher Investments, watch what they do, not what they say. Either candidate will inherit a very tight Congress, meaning that getting landmark legislation through will be tough. And if you really can't take it, turn off the tube and read some books. Everyone always thinks this election is the most important ever, but it's so much fun to go back and read how every single generation thought their election, too, was the most important one ever. Here are a few of my favorites. For mature readers only, of course, but you should read Hunter S. Thompson's Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, 1972. If you thought these years were wild and woolly, well, they were in the beginning of the 70s as well. Jonathan Haidt's The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion, is a seminal work in understanding our divisions today and why we argue with each other as much as we do. The Three Languages of Politics by Arnold Kling is also a short and pithy book which can give you a rubric to speak with those that you may not agree with. And What It Takes, The Way to the White House by Richard Ben Kramer has always been a favorite of mine. It describes the psyche and the personality required to truly win a presidential contest. I recommend them all. Okay, let's get to today's guest and book. We are delighted to have Gregory Zuckerman, a longtime journalist for the Wall Street Journal, on the show to discuss his book, The Man Who Solved the Market, the often dramatic story of how Jim Simons and a group of unlikely mathematicians applied their skill sets to become some of the most successful investors of all time. Simons is a quant, which means his strategies use purely data to invest. They don't read the news. They don't even look at company earnings much. They just do what their formulas tell them to do. This type of approach is of special interest these days, as quants are not only all the rage, but in fact many are finding that data alone has not been sufficient to get superior investing results. All of this is just a part of what makes Jim Simons so interesting. He and his strategies have always been shrouded in mystery, and Wall Street insiders have always wanted to look into Simons' mind and approach. Greg Zuckerman, a 20-year veteran at the Wall Street Journal and a three-time winner of the Gerald Loeb Award for journalism, actually got Simons to open up enough to tell the tale. 
You can learn more about Greg at GregoryZuckerman.com or find him on Twitter at GZuckerman. So let's get right into this fascinating topic, and we hope you enjoy this diversion from the election mania. So, Greg, thanks again for being on the podcast and for joining us. We've been readers for a very long time. Great to be here, Michael, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. Greg, let's start off with your latest book, The Man Who Solved the Market, How Jim Simons Launched the Quant Revolution. One of the things we ask our guests is, why should every well-read investor read your book? But I think in your case, there's really almost no way a reader could know who Jim Simons is or what he's all about because he and Renaissance Technologies are just so reclusive and out of the press. Renaissance is the most secretive firm Wall Street has ever seen. Jim Simons and his colleagues They don't hire from Wall Street. It's hard to find people who were there and left. They don't allow people to talk. They sign these 30-page non-disclosure agreements. I had meetings set up with people in the industry, competitors of Jim Simons, and like the night before, I'd get a text, oh, Greg, sorry, we have to cancel. Why are you canceling? Jim asked us not to talk to you. And I'm like, wait, he's your competitor. Why do you care what Jim, well, it's Jim Simons. We can't offend Jim Simons. What happened was I went to California and I talked to some people who were there at the beginning, like in the 70s, and were there at the genesis of this firm, Renaissance Technologies. They had really interesting anecdotes. They were funny. They were eye-opening. I was really struck. What do you think investors, especially the average investor, might be able to glean from someone like a Jim Simons? I'll tell you four reasons why I did this book. Partly, it's the returns. So he's up 66% on average a year since 1988. And that's before fees. After fees, it really drops dramatically to only 39%. Mm. So (laughs) there are the returns, which are kind of crazy and absurd. But it's also the fact that he's a pioneer. So today, everything is about predictive algorithms, be it Amazon, be it Facebook, Tencent, everything's models, all these companies, that's the future, and Wall Street itself. Everyone's trying to marry these two approaches, a fundamental approach hmm. with a quantitative approach. But everybody's trying to be sort of quantitative. And these guys were doing it back again in the 1980s. It's kind of crazy. And, and things like AI, machine learning, they were doing early versions. So I wanted to understand how they did it. For those reasons as well, they're pioneers. The larger theme that these people are having an outsized effect on society broadly. We're talking billionaires are doing it, and especially Jim Simons and Robert Mercer, they keep people in my book. So Jim Simons is a left-leaning guy. Bob Mercer is probably the single-handedly the most important reason why Donald Trump is in office. One thing that struck me about the book was that Simons himself, just a brilliant mathematician, a physicist who still has a legacy that carries on, and yet he didn't have instantaneous success with making money in quantitative funds, did he? That's exactly right. And when I speak to investors, especially sort of smaller investors, I was really struck, not just the difficulty of creating this systematic approach. It's a trading system that in some ways acts on its own. Humans help and play a big role. Don't get me wrong, but they developed it over time. They literally started in 1978 in this strip mall in Long Island. And they only really turned the corner in 1990. And even then, it was commodities and futures and bonds. It took them years later to get stocks. So I, too, was sort of encouraged by 
there are difficulties in that it gives us all reason to think that we still can succeed. And frankly, Simon's succeeded after the age of 50, which I find encouraging. I turned 50 recently. So for those reasons, it's encouraging. And, and also he went back and forth in terms of his approach. So I always thought, like you said, he's this famous mathematician. So obviously he would use a quantitative approach, but no. He was reading the newspapers and, hey, I think gold's going high. I'm going to buy gold. In 2018, the end of the year, the market's collapsing and Jim Simon is on vacation and he starts panicking. And I finally got him <laughs> to talk to me and it took forever. But finally, he did open up. I said, Jim, you're the last person in the world who should be panicking. You're Jim Simons. You're the pioneering quantitative investor. It's all about models and systems and not using your intuition and judgment. <laughs> he didn't really appreciate the irony. But yeah, it was reassuring that even he panics. My observation is that whatever the domain is, whether it's quantitative or fundamental, or if you have a value person or a growth person or whatever it is, there's such a thing as quality. And some people are able to deliver that and others less so. And that there's always one or two really good in each domain, ultimately, it seems to me. Yeah. Tying back to my book. So when I met with these quants, Jim Simons and his colleagues, people, you know, in their 70s and 80s who have a fortune right now and they invest their own money. And I was talking to them and I would, would have expected them to be invested in other quants. They believe in this. They're pioneers. And yet, no, they're invested in, you know, <laughs> David Einhorn and fundamental investors. I was really struck by that. So I don't know if that shows that there is hope for fundamental investors, or maybe these guys can't help themselves going back to our other theme. Yeah. I'm not sure what that says, but I was struck by that. There's only one guy that still is always too upset, David Tepper, the hedge fund manager, and yep. he doesn't take outside money. I'm always amazed by him. But increasingly, I come away disappointed by the approaches and the thesis. So not always, not always, and it's still really impressive and smart people, but it's just harder, I think, for fundamental investing. That said, I don't think the world is going entirely towards a quantitative approach. The returns haven't been that much better for a lot of quants. So it's that balance and that challenge in, in this world where information just flies so quickly. Do you need to be a much longer term investor? I think maybe that's the solution, yeah. but can intuition and judgment still work? in this day and age. I'm not sure. I'm struggling with that. You had this ability to get to these stories, and this one in particular is sort of famously difficult to get toward. So one of the ways I know you is just from reporting on some of the most sensational stories of the era. Tell us a little bit about your career path, the trajectory, some of the things you've seen, where you started out, and where you are today. I didn't ever think about being a journalist, a reporter, a book writer. I stumbled into this career. I always thought I'd go work on Wall Street. I was a guy who always loved investing. And then I graduated. I went to a liberal arts school, Brandeis University, outside Boston. I did well, traveled for a year, and then said, all right, I'm going to go work on Wall Street. I had these good grades, went to a good school. I couldn't even get an interview, let alone a job. And it was partly because it was a tough time on Wall Street. And then one day I saw an ad in the newspaper, and it was for a trade publication. And I went in there and I had no clips to show them. I didn't work on my college newspaper or high school or anything like that. So they said, okay, we'll give you a leaked document, a pretend document. Citibank is merging with, I don't know, somebody else. And I'm supposed to write an article about that. I remember distinctly sitting there, the typewriter, writing an article about this leaked document. And I'm like, wait, they're going to pay me to write about Wall Street? I love Wall Street. And I love writing. And I love newspapers. I was a big, obsessive newspaper reader. And it never crossed my mind that I could write about something I loved. So I got that job and it turns out that my writing 
wasn't great. I thought it was really good. I, I thought I aced the test and I was doing the opposite of what you're supposed to do in an academic paper. You do a, like a pyramid where you give like your thesis at the beginning, right? And then your conclusion is really good. So you should have seen the end of my article was really good. But we do the opposite in the world of newspapers where you do a reverse pyramid because most people don't read to the end of the article. As part of the test, they had me interview someone. The guy I interviewed was my future boss. He was testing how I am on the phone. And it turns out that I'm really good at talking to people and getting them to open up and share information. Mm. So I was there for a while. Then I went to the New York Post for about nine months. So then I got a job at the Wall Street Journal. And what's different about me, I think, is that I happen to love investing. And that's sort of why a lot of what I write, I think, has some emotion because I understand those emotions when you're feeling on top of the world and everything's going right and you're making money. And, uh, and the flip side, when everything goes wrong and you feel like an idiot and you don't know what you're going to do. And I try to get at those emotions to some extent. I'm also a sports guy. So a lot of what I end up writing about are home runs and strikeouts. And I think there's a lot of drama with those. And I think there are a lot of lessons, too. So I'm learning and I want my audience to learn. So you can learn from the mistakes of the greats and the not so greats and also from their home runs as well. It's so interesting you frame that that way. One of the reasons I recommend your books frequently is because this industry is so full of drama. And there are great stories to be told, nonfiction stories. There really are. And I think your book with John Paulson was also similar to that. And it gets you excited about these things. It is interesting. It's, it's amazing. These are titans. I, I agree. And also you're dealing with themes that are important themes. Where's the world going? Where's yeah. the economy going? How are we creating more jobs? What's the future for different industries? One of the reasons why I've done well my career is just because I really enjoy business. So when I'm having drinks with someone or coffee or dinner or something with you know a banker or investor or somebody like that, I'm genuinely interested yeah. in what they have to say. I'm not kind of going through the motions. And I just enjoy the subject matter because it has relevance to us all this is there's the game side of it you know the gambling side of it which is kind of fun but also there's real life impact and there's so many industries so you get to learn about every industry i, I don't know it's a fun industry i think fun a profession journalism is such a hot button issue these days and people talk about the state of journalism and all this kind of thing what have you seen change for the better and the worse and how do you see your industry today so it has changed our stories are shorter. Um, <laughs> partly people's attention spans are shorter. Uh, so we've had to cut out our stories. My average story length when I started at the journal in 1996 was 1,200 words. And I'd say the average story today is how about 900 words. And now we call them leaders of like page one stories. Back then were about 3,000 yeah. words. Now they're 2,000 words. So, you know, as a percentage, that's cut. I think there's more competition in a lot of ways, just sort of different vehicles out there. There's more immediacy, obviously, whereas you got tweets today, you've got online places. It was still competitive back then as well, but different types of stories. And we journalists don't always get it right. Look at 2016, how many of us were caught flat-footed by the changes of this country. So I'm always learning. There's so much I need to learn. So we're open to criticism, but there's a difference between criticism and calling us fake news all the time. Tell me just a few words about how do you develop a thick skin, or is that pretty de rigueur? <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy criticism if I haven't made a true mistake. Mm. We're all a little bit neurotic. We happen to be neurotic. Journalists are neurotic. I'm an awful speller, and I used to go to sleep at night scared to death that I misspelled the guy's name that I wrote about the next day or the woman. And sometimes I did, and 
I used to lose sleep before stories that they're wrong. And the only reason I don't today is because now we put them out online and I get immediate response. So we used to, you know, the next yeah. day pick up the paper and then get the calls. You know, it's funny. People don't realize that you can write front page stories for the Wall Street Journal frequently. But if you also frequently make mistakes that mm -hmm. result in corrections, you're going to lose your job. So you can have the greatest, sexy front page story, but let's say there's one or two mistakes in that story, you're going to get spoken to. There's so many parallels with actually just managing money for clients, because in fact, a lot of that applies. As I was doing some research about you for this interview, though, I hadn't appreciated that you've written a couple of sports books and with your sons. Is that correct? Yeah. So tell us about that. A few years ago, my sons were younger, and I was talking to my youngest son, Eli, who's a really good athlete, and he was born with two fingers in his left hand. And he's so he's got a difference. And frankly, he was a little bit insecure about his difference. And we started talking about athletes, sports stars who had their own differences. And he had the idea of, well, maybe we interview them. And I thought it was a great idea because I thought it could provide inspiration, not just for kids with physical differences, but what we tried to do is we found superstars in different sports who dealt with different challenges, setbacks, be it racism, poverty, abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, sexism. And we set out to talk to them and ask them how they dealt with their differences and setbacks. And the idea being that we think that every kid, but every person, it's really, it's a book for young people from like eight to 14, but we think everybody's got some difference. Maybe you can't see it, but maybe it's on the inside. And we try to write books that are inspiring young people. I'm thankful, you know, we get emails and letters and we speak sometimes in inner city groups. We went to London and spoke to some kids. So yeah, we're really proud of those books. That is very cool. I was really taken by those. Thank you. Thank you. What's next for you? Are you thinking about a new book? I'm always thinking about a new book. Uh -huh. Most of my ideas don't pan out. I passed this one in. I literally stumbled upstairs from this basement and told my wife, I'm done. I am done, done, done. No more books. I'm done. And I don't want to presume to understand how women feel, but I bet you it's a little bit like, for some anyway, childbirth, where you're like, I'm done. And then, you know, a few months later, you're like, well, maybe. <laughs> so that's sort of how I feel. I'm still recovering from this one. But yeah, I would like to write. I've got a few ideas, but nothing. I'm always open to good ideas, and people want to reach out to me. I'd love to hear them. So I've got an idea right now. I just don't know if it works yet. Like all of them, there are all kinds of reasons not to do it, and mm. it's hard. It's really yeah. kind of hard. Yeah, books are an amazing labor. Well, thanks so much, Gregory Zuckerman, best-selling author, Wall Street Journal, 23 years. Thanks so much for spending some time with us. That was a lot of fun. Great to be here. Well, that was our conversation with Greg Zuckerman. You know, whether you believe quant is the best approach or not, these days investors need to know what it is. For no other reason than it gives you a sense of just how competitive markets truly are. These are some of the smartest people in the entire world competing for superior returns. And one of my hopes is that in listening to this podcast, it will give you some pause the next time you think you've figured out what's going to happen next in the markets. You're competing with the likes of Renaissance and many others like them. Thanks again to Greg for being with us. Our next episode, we have Paul Moreland on November 18th to discuss his book, The Human Tide, How Population Shaped the Modern World. The investing public has always focused too much on short-term issues like stimulus packages and elections, 
and yet not nearly enough on the big slow forces that play key roles ultimately in global economic outcomes. Global population change over time is really worth knowing about, and we'll discuss that with Paul on our next episode. And we want to hear from you. Whether you have a book recommendation or just a comment, find us on Twitter at WellReadPod, Instagram at WellReadInvestorPod, or our website, WellReadInvestor.com. And until then, and as always, here's hoping all your reading profits your mind and your money. Take care. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. Past performance is no guarantee of future returns. The content of this podcast represents the opinions and viewpoints of Fisher Investments and should not be regarded as personal investment advice. No assurances are made we will continue to hold these views, which may change at any time based on new information, analysis, or reconsideration. Copyright Fisher Investments, 2020.